Um, well, if you are new, we are going through a series. This is our third sermon in our sermon series over the church. And so we're talking about the identity of the church, who the church is, um, and then we're going to talk about the expression of the church. Uh, so far, we've seen that the church isn't man's idea. Man didn't create the church, but rather God created the church. He is the one that designed it, created it, sustained it. Jesus said, I will build my church on this rock, and, uh, and nothing, the gates of hell won't stand against it. And so we've, we've seen that Jesus is the creator of his church, that he planned it and that he will sustain it. Um, not only that, but we've also learned that he is the one that identifies it. Jesus is the one that identifies his church, not our past experiences, not our, our, our sin or other sin, but rather Christ. But he is the one that uniquely has the ability to identify his church. Today, we're going to be talking about uh, another aspect of the identity of the church. We're going to be talking about that the church is a people that are changed by the gospel. Right? We know that the church isn't a building, it's not a company, and it's not a country club. The church is God's people gathered together. It's not just any people that randomly gather together in a church building, but it's rather the people that have been changed at the core of who they are by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn, open in uh, with me to Titus chapter 3, um, and we're going to be reading verses 3 through 8. It's going to be our main text for today. Paul says, in, in starting in verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish Disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit and we poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. I want you to notice the end section. Notice that Paul says that this saying that he had just given is trustworthy. He says, I want you to insist on this. That is excellent and profitable for all people. What's Paul talking about here? Paul's talking about the gospel. Right? The book of Titus is written by the apostle Paul to a young man named Titus. Titus was a pastor, and he was following Paul's example and Paul's training. He was, Paul was, uh, was Titus's mentor. And so uh, Titus is in Crete. And he's going around, and in verse 5 of Titus 1, we see that, that Paul has left Titus in Crete to put what remained into order. And so Paul is writing to Titus, instructing him what is important in the church. We kind of get a, a shop talk here between Paul and Titus. And so Paul is kind of sitting down with his young mentee and saying, here's what is important. Here's what you need to insist on. These are the things that are to define the church. And he says, ultimately, it's a, it's, Titus is a really short book. It's three chapters. It's a really good read. But he takes a large portion of it and he says, this is what you need to insist on. You need to insist on the gospel. The purity of the gospel, what it is, makes all the difference in the world. It is what makes something and someone part of the church rather than not. So where does Paul start when he is talking about the gospel? Well, look in verse 3 with me. He says, and he starts out by saying, 
For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray. Right? He, he starts his exhortation on the gospel by talking about the brokenness of humanity. And notice that the, the, good, the bad news that precedes the good news, notice how he, he approaches it. Right? He doesn't, Paul doesn't say, now the brokenness of the world is attributed to all those other people out there. Right? Their political system, their way of government, you know, their selfishness, their greed, all of these things. No, he says, for we ourselves. He includes himself. Right? It, the humility that is a part of Paul. He, he in 1 Timothy, another letter to a, a young pastor, he says this. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Paul wrote that towards the end of his life. Now, just a little sketch about who Paul is. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees, right? He pursued God full-heartedly, everything. He persecuted the church. And then God comes and saves Paul. He rescues him from himself. He has an amazing experience where he encounters the risen Christ, and his life is changed. Paul goes on to write 13 letters in the New Testament and plant over 20 churches. Right? I mean, this is a guy that is all out for Christ. He's faced more persecution, more hardships than most of us can dream of in a lifetime. And at the end of this, and the end of all of this persecution, all of this hardship he faces against Christ, when asked what's the biggest problem he faces, what's the biggest problem in the world, Paul says, my brokenness, my sin. And this is what it means. This is the heart that is open and receptive to the gospel only when we realize that the greatest problems we face aren't out there, but rather in here. It's when, it's when the sinfulness of the world, the problem starts in us, rather than pointing outward. Do you realize the brokenness and the need that you have? Pride, self-sufficiency, saying, I can do this on my own, it's antagonistic to the gospel. We see Jesus... Uh, Jesus encounters, he's going to, to Simon, a Pharisee's house for dinner. And as he goes to, uh, to the Pharisee's dinner, uh, there's a woman, a prostitute, that comes. And she throws herself at Jesus' feet. She begins to weep and wet his feet with her tears. And she takes her hair and she dries his feet with her hair. And she puts this expensive ointment on his feet as she cries and weeps and, and falls at his feet. And this, the Pharisee Simon thinks to himself, and he says, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this is, he wouldn't let her, he wouldn't let her touch him. Jesus, which is always cool when Jesus knows what you're thinking, Jesus like turns and, and like, and addresses what Simon's thinking, not what Simon says, but what Simon's thinking. And, uh, and he says, Simon, I, I have something to say to you. There were two people that, that owed uh, a man money, one fifty and the other 500. Now they were both forgiven. They are both forgiven their debt. Who do you think loved the master more? Simon says, well, the one that, that owed more. He says, you've answered correctly. I came, and you neither washed my feet nor greeted me. She has come, and she has, she has washed my feet with her tears. She's put expensive ointment. Though she has sinned much, she is forgiven. For the one who is forgiven much loves much. The illustration, the point that Jesus is making is that desperation, brokenness, a realization that we can't fix ourselves, that there are things in our life 
that we are not able to overcome. Our understanding that God and God alone is the one that we need. This is the conduit for the gospel. The bad news of our brokenness, of our inability to change ourselves, that our sin puts us at odds and enmity with God. We have to receive this and understand this if we're to ever understand and receive the good news. Romans 3.11 says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. I know we make this point a lot. I know I talk about this a lot. But it's because we really don't believe it. Right? We, we, can, we can acknowledge it. We can speak it. But do we really believe that our sinful nature is our biggest problem? Do we really believe that we are broken outside of Christ and that we have no hope outside of him? Because so often, unless we're put in a situation, and, and, and hardship really reveals where our trust is, but so often we lean on everything but. We lean on our intelligence, we lean on our resources, we lean on our relationships, and the last person that we really think that we need is Christ. It's only when we have been emptied, when we are at the bottom, when we finally come to the end of ourselves, that we are in the place where we can receive Christ. We can understand the good news for all that it is. All of us have been foolish, right? All of us have been disobedient. Romans talks about that we all have traded, created things for creator God, right? Whether it's that we are enthralled by Netflix, staying up hours and hours because we're binge watching something, but yet we ignore the one that created everything, whether it's that we're consumed with our job, it's in the neglect of God, or maybe it's a hobby that we'll spend countless hours and resources on while we aren't able to even pick up God's word or be in fellowship consistently. All of us have acted foolishly. All of us have taken things that aren't worthy and we've made them more important than the only God who is. It's because of our foolishness that we need a Savior that we need someone to come and to rescue us. And this is what he picks up saying. He says, But, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Man, that is such good news that he says, but. Right? Because there could be no but. There could be no God coming to rescue us, and we are left to our own devices. We are stuck in our sin. And the only hope for ourselves is that you are able to muster up enough moral effort to look good on the outside is that you appease others and ignore that what mean what it means to pursue christ what it means to be moral is not just outward actions but inward motives you see we have to ignore those things but when god appears there's hope there's hope for your life there's hope for this world and i'm so thankful that my hope in this world is in our political system Right? My hope for this world isn't in technology. It isn't in our healthcare system. Our hope in this world is Christ. It's that God has appeared. Right? God has appeared in Christ, and he and only he is the one that can save, the one that can rescue. But Christ. So what does he save us from? What does God save us us from? The understanding of the Gospels is imperative because if we get the Gospel wrong, we get everything else wrong. Paul talks about this in Galatians 1, verse 6 through 9. He's talking to a church that has been deceived, that they have, they've heard the true Gospel, but they're denying it, and they're living out practically another Gospel. 
And this is what he says to them. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul says there are lots of other people that come and will try to present false gospels. They'll try to deceive for selfish gain. He says, don't listen to other false gospels. And every other false gospel, it starts with the question of what do you need saving from? And so I want to look real, I want to look at three counterfeit gospels that we hear in our culture. Three false gospels that are spread around that sometimes we're deceived about that we think are perhaps real gospels. Moralism, prosperity gospel, and that Jesus is just our savior. So first, moralism, right? What is moralism? Moralism is the belief that God's love and acceptance of you are based on your ability and performance, right? And so what this means is that, is that moralism teaches that if you, and only when you're good, can you earn God's love, can you have it, right? And we see this all throughout, right? Uh, we're raised up as practical moralists. And so to get good grades in school, what do you have to do? You need to perform, Right? If you want to be good at, if you want to make the athletic team, what do you need to do? You need to perform. Right? If you want to earn status at your job, what do you need to do? You need to perform. Right? All of those acceptance, your feeling of, of value and all of those things is based on your ability to perform. Your ability to live up to a standard that you can suck it up and that you can push through, that you can be tough and you can figure things out and you can fix your life. The only thing is it falls apart in our relationship with God. You see, when we think that God only loves us based on what we do, then we're always uncertain of God's love. It's never permanent. It's never something that we can rest in, that we can be assured of, because it's always based around our actions. I don't know about you, but, but my actions aren't as consistent as I would hope that they would be. Some days are great days, and then you're on the mountaintops. Other days, other days aren't so good. And so your understanding, your assurance of God's love is always up and always down. It's always shaky. There are two things that, that we see moralism working in our heart. How do we know that we are living and we're believing that God only loves us based on our performance? Right? I want to just show two things. Right? They, uh, the way that we know that we're operating moralism. First, how do you react to suffering and pain? How do you react to suffering and pain when it comes your way? I know for me, uh, my senior year of high school was probably the first instance in my life where I really encountered a lot of suffering and pain. I'd become a Christian when I was 16, and uh, and everything had been okay. I mean, there had been bumps in the road, but come my senior year, I had had friends die, I had my mom cancer, my aunt have heart surgery, all this pain, all this suffering. And one of the first things I started to ask is, why me? What did I do wrong? God, why have you given me this suffering, this pain? Can we can I do something to fix it? What do you want from me, God? Maybe I can, you know, read more, or if I can pray more, maybe if I can just be more obedient, maybe if I would just give my life, then you would fix things in my life. We realize that we think that 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 God's interactions with us, that God's love towards us 
is dictated in our obedience or disobedience rather than his love and his grace. How do you interact with suffering? Do you, when, when you encounter suffering, you encounter pain, are you immediately unsure of God's love for you? Do you immediately run that, man, it's my actions, God must be angry with me? Or do you trust that God might be working in and through this? Do you rest in the fact that God loves you and his grace is consistent in your life? Another way that we see moralism operate in our life is how do you react to the joys of others? How do you react to the joys of other people in your life? When another person gets the promotion that you wanted, when someone else has the success or, or gets the, the object that you had desired, I know for me, um, in my college years, I dated all throughout high school, and then the Lord called me into a season of singleness in college, but yet that was like the, the same season that he called all of my friends to get married. And so I'm like, I'm, I'm single and I have, you know, it's a Baptist college. So everybody's like, everybody's getting together. Everybody's getting married. I had like one friend that was like for the first year and a half was like, Hey, I'm, I'm sick now. I don't think there's any girls. And then he gets started dating too. And I'm like, man, I'm just no hope, you know? And, uh, and so some of it was willing singleness. Some of it was not as willing. Um, but, but it was a season and, and the Lord really tested me in this. Am I able to celebrate with others? when there's something that I desire that's right before me? Or do am I saying, am I jealous? Am I saying, man, God, why? That's not fair. Don't you see my obedience? Don't you see my love for you? Why don't you give me what I want? I'm, I'm more righteous than they are, so you should see me. You should give me what I really want. And it's seeing God's blessing and God's grace towards you as contingent on your behavior, on your obedience or disobedience, rather than on God who gives lavishly as he pleases when you understand God's love towards you and his grace, you're able to celebrate with others rather than envy them, rather than being consumed with jealousy. So we see that moralism, moralism is something all of us can get caught in, that it is, it's believing that God's love and acceptance is based on our ability and our performance. So the, the second false gospel, the second way that the gospel can be distorted is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is the belief that God wants all people to be wealthy, healthy, and happy in this life. One of the main proponents, Robert Tilton, says this. He says, I believe it is the will of God for all to prosper because I see it in the word, not because it has worked mildly for someone else. I do not put my eyes on men, but on God, who gives me the power to get wealth. 2 Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Luke nine twenty three through 25, Jesus is talking here. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Forever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The prosperity gospel has taken root and has spread throughout our culture and in much of Africa. And it teaches that the purpose of your life is to be healthy, wealthy, happy. And that God is a puppet that you need to pull the right strings in order to get him to give you your wishes and give him your desires. That we ultimately are the ones that control God. And that something must be wrong with us. We must be in sin if... Perhaps we aren't physically healthy, or perhaps we aren't as financially prosperous, or we're not as happy circumstantially as the rest of the world. We see Jesus contradicts this. 
being nailed to a cross. We see Paul contradicts this by being beheaded. We see Peter contradicts this by being hanged upside down on a cross. We see the entire first century of Christianity being persecuted in opposition to this. Two highlights of the prosperity gospel is that they believe in giving in order to get. Uh, one of the proponents, Gloria Copel, put in her 2012 book, God's Will is Prosperity. Give $10 and receive 1000 Give 1000 and receive 100000 In short, they see Mark 10.30 as a very good deal. In Mark 10.30, they use it as, uh, as a, a, an exchange. If I give God this much money, then he is bound to return and to give me far more. Once again, God's on a puppet that if we pull the right string, he'll then answer as we desire. Let's read what Jesus says in Luke six thirty-two through 36. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you'll be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Jesus calls us to give, expecting nothing in return. Giving is an act of worship in which we want God, not in which we want him to give us more possessions. The whole point of giving, and and hear this, why we give financially is to show that we're not enslaved to it. It is an act of worship in declaring that this does not hold sway over me. I am not bound by this. This is not my God. I worship God and use money as a means to demonstrate his worth and value. It's not a way of using God that you might get more money. Because in the end, if that's, your, that's, if that's the purpose, your God is money. And God is the means to which you serve your true God. A second way we see prosperity gospel is naming and claiming. Naming and claiming. Creflo Dollar, another proponent of prosperity gospel, writes, When we pray... Believing that we have already received what we are praying. God has no choice but to make our prayers come to pass. It is a key to, it is a key to getting results as a Christian. Jesus, Luke twenty two, forty two, in the Garden of Gethsemane, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You don't Name something and then try to obligate God into doing what you want. I mean, it sounds silly. It's like a, it's like a, a, an infant, a little child, you know, telling their parents, you will buy me this lollipop. Therefore, it will come to pass. Like, how foolish. Like, you're a child. You are not controlling your parents. Who in the world do we think we are that we are the ones controlling and dictating God? You don't name it. And claim it. You submit to Christ and his will. You believe him for his promises. And you rest in his assurances to us. We see that ultimate prosperity gospel leads us astray. Because even if we don't believe all of it, even tenths of it, 
we find that we become depressed, we become frustrated when we expect our life to be wealthy, to be healthy, to always be happy. The Bible paints a very different portrait. We live in a world that's broken. We live in a world that's marked with sin. And we should have an expectation that this world isn't our home. And therefore, we're going to have hardships. Therefore, we're going to face persecution. Therefore, there are going to be times where life doesn't go your way, where you're in the hospital and things are hard and it's broken, where finances are tight and you're trying to make it, where you're not always happy. Things don't go your way. And does that mean that you just don't have enough faith? Does that mean that God's not pleased with you? He doesn't love you? It doesn't. Man, if it does, it's it's such a sad existence to live in. It's such a terrible relationship to be controlled by. The last false gospel that we see, which is um, disguised more, is Jesus as our Savior only. And what this says is it says, I accept Jesus as Savior, and as I grow in grace, I make him Lord of my life. This is a much more... um, deceptive i grew up uh you know my mom would drag me to baptist church and uh and i came to know christ in in a baptist church and so i went to um church every sunday and and i would go to lots of camps and they'd have revivals and all kinds of things um and as i grew up um I, i would hear differences in gospel presentation right you know you would have someone come up and and they would say you know christ died for your sin he was buried he rose again from the dead now if you would pray to receive christ as and I heard two different things, you know, Lord and Savior or as Savior. And we, in fact, we heard not too recently at one of the camps that we attended uh, with the youth. And as I grew older, I started to question, like, what is this difference? Is it just, you know, I mean, is it just semantics? Is it just words? Like, they prefer Lord and Savior and they just prefer Savior, you know? Like, some people like steak and tomato, you know, potatoes. Like, some people like, you know, I don't know, broccoli, whatever else. Like, it's just, is like, it's just a preference, but as I studied more, I realized that it's, it's actually a big deal. It's actually vital. It actually changes the very nature of the gospel and how you understand it. And so when you see Jesus as simply Savior and not as Lord, then it's someone that you can come to for fire insurance. You can get me out of the consequences, but I, I still remain in control of my life. And man, it has done damage to Christ's church because it deceives people into thinking that perhaps that they're a Christian when they're really not. When they wanted to make a one-time commitment, but there was no desire for a relationship with Jesus Christ. Instead, there was a, a, a fear of hell. Three things uh, that we see um, that marks understanding Jesus as Savior. Focus on a one-time commitment to Christ rather than a continual commitment through a lifestyle of faith and repentance. One of the things that you see when Jesus is just presented as Savior is that there's often manipulation. The old, you know, hellfire and brimstone is whatever means necessary. If we can just get them to make a decision, walk an aisle, make a commitment, then they'll be saved. Rather than understanding that what it means to be a Christian, as Jesus says, is it means to daily pick up your cross and follow him. It means to daily give yourself over to him. That it's a continual attitude of faith and repentance now don't get me wrong there comes a point in time in our life where we do need to make a commitment where we do need to step forward we do need to receive christ 
But for some people, it's going to look very different, right? Most of the time, when you have Jesus just as Savior, not as Lord, there's a heavy emphasis upon you need to know the exact date and the exact time and the exact place. But this isn't true for everyone, right? For, for some people that have grown up, you know, and they're in their mid-40s, they've not known Christ, there's going to be a much more drastic conversion, right? It's going to be noticeable. It's going to be different. But for those that perhaps have grown up in the church, grown up in a family that has from their youth been teaching them to love and respond to Jesus through faith and turning from their sin, there's not this drastic visible sign. But it doesn't mean that they're not saved. It's because they have a lifestyle and an attitude of faith and repentance. They've been born again. And there was a moment in time, there was a specific moment in time where they were justified, where they were made right before God. But they might not know exactly when that was because their parents and their family have been helping them to cultivate that lifestyle of turning from sin and resting in Jesus. And we see this. Jesus in Luke 9.23 just tells us to take up our cross daily. The second thing about Jesus as Savior is that there's a misunderstanding of the nature of saving faith. There's a misunderstanding of the nature of saving faith. You see, the, the faith that saves isn't simply an escape from hell. It's not simply fire insurance, but instead it's a desire to be reconciled back into God. See, oftentimes people will hear the gospel and they'll get convicted of their sin, understand that they have a guilty conscience, and they'll come, and instead of actually wanting Jesus, actually wanting to be in a relationship with him, they want to use Jesus to instead appease their conscience, to instead quiet the inner guilt inside. And so instead of desiring to submit their life to Jesus and follow him, They instead want to use Jesus and continue to live their life as they want. Time to time, coming back, giving, making a commitment that their conscience might be appeased once more, rather than submitting their life to him. The third thing we see is that when you have Christ as Savior and not Lord, it divides Christ into segments rather than who he really is. Christ is is savior christ is lord those aren't terms that we give to him they are designations for who he is right just because someone doesn't realize that christ is savior and christ is lord doesn't mean he's not christ is savior and lord his work on the cross and in the resurrection has declared that and so what we do isn't make him savior and lord we recognize of that he is savior and lord The Bible talks about that we are in in covenant with Jesus. When you come into relationship with him, you come into covenant with him. Ephesians 5 talks about it as a marriage, right? That you come into marriage with Jesus. Now, having just been recently married, you learn that you don't put, you don't get a cut a person up into segments. Like, I like this part of you, but this part, we're going to wait 10 years before I get to hang out with that, right? You know, like, I mean, Emily's learned that firsthand, you know. I'm sure there's lots of areas in which she, well, I wish we could just postpone that area for maturity, you know. But but you don't get to pick and choose with somebody, right? Well, I like this part. I don't like this part. I really wish we could cut that segment of your life out. No, you when you come into covenant, when you come into marriage with someone, you take all of them, right? All of them or none of them. It's It's a holistic thing. You give yourself to that person wholly. What it means for us to be in covenant with Jesus is it means for us to be in covenant with him wholly, entirely. You can't say, Jesus, I want you as Savior in my life, but I don't want you as Lord. I want to continue to rule my life. That's not who Jesus is. 
Jesus isn't simply Savior. You can't cut him into pieces like that. Jesus is Savior and he is Lord. And to have him in your life means that you accept his sacrifice on your behalf and you bow and bend your life to him as a king. You see, all of us will, one way or the other. Philippians talks about that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Under the earth, on the earth and in heaven, every knee will bow and confess. The opportunity is for us to do that now, for us to submit our lives to him as king. For me, this is, this is a challenge because there are lots of areas in our life where we can submit more so to the lordship of Christ. What does it, I mean, what does it mean that Christ is Lord? It's a very simple term, but it's very profound. It means that Christ is Lord of your job. Christ is Lord of your family. Christ is Lord of your free time. Christ is Lord of your finances. Christ is Lord of your relationship. Christ is the king of, of any of your, your struggles. He reigns and rules over every realm of life. You see, when we have Jesus simply as Savior, it can be very private, very, very close, very segregated from the rest of our life. It's just between me and Jesus. When you understand that Jesus is Lord, it goes into every realm of your life, into every relationship, into every interaction. There's no place in which Jesus doesn't want to lead you, in which Jesus doesn't want to guide you. But it's hard, right? It's difficult because... We still don't believe that we're that bad. We still don't really believe we're that wicked. We still think that we can guide our lives, that we have things figured out, that Jesus, I know you saved me, but like, I got this one. We still believe that and live that out, and that's why we don't want Jesus to be Lord. That's why we segment Jesus as Lord into certain areas of our life rather than saying, all of my life is laid before you. It means... What is the true what is the true gospel? Right? The the true gospel is that when you hear the message that Jesus Christ died for your sin and was buried and rose again from the dead, you respond by turning from your sin and by placing your faith in Jesus, by resting in him, by putting all of your hope for your life, for your salvation in Jesus Christ. That you believe that he has saved you from your sin and that you bow and submit your life to him as king, as Lord, that he would be the one that calls the shots, that it's no longer your life but his. I mean, this is exactly what Paul says. Paul talks in Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Crucified. That's a pretty, pretty harsh form of death. Paul doesn't say, I walked an aisle, I made a commitment, I prayed to receive Jesus as my savior. Paul says, I have been crucified, I have died. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself up for me. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you know Christ is not simply your Savior, but also your Lord, 
the one that leads you, the one that guides you. And I promise you, Christ's lordship in your life is for your good. He knows the path. He knows the way. He's sovereign. He leads us graciously and patiently. He's, he's desiring to take things that are worthless and replace them with things that endure. Trust him for it. Open your life. Give him, give him all of yourself. So we've heard that there are many different forms, many different deceptions, counterfeit gospels out there. And we've heard the true gospel. But how does gospel change us? Right, what, what exactly does the gospel do that, that transforms and rescues us? Going back again to Titus, he talks about um, that, that God appeared, God our Savior appeared. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So when we receive Christ, it talks about that there is an act that God does. It's called regeneration, right? What does regeneration mean? Edward Gross says that regeneration is the work of God's Holy Spirit in the soul of humans, enabling us to see our sinfulness and peril and to behold the beauty of the Savior so that we can truly praise and worship him again. It talks about it in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel 36, 26. He says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. There is an act of God, a supernatural, miraculous work that God does when we come to him, when he rescues us. It's called regeneration. It's, it's an act that is entirely on God's part, whereby he opens our eyes, he touches our ears that we might see, that we might hear. When it says that we have a heart of stone, what that means is it means that before, before we were a Christian, God's commands, God's word came, but they bounced off. There was no place for them. Instead, like a stone, our heart was hardened to God. We cared nothing for him. We used him, ignored him, mistreated him. But when the gospel comes truly, it changes us. And all of a sudden, we have a heart of flesh now that desires the God that we once ignored, that cherishes his word, that values him over anything and everything, that he becomes beautiful beyond anything else in this world. The, the New Testament describes this, this regeneration in different ways. It talks about it as a new birth. Right, Jesus talking to Nicodemus in John 3 says that you must be born again, that a man cannot even see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And this doesn't happen by the will of man, but instead it's by God. That God is the one that comes and causes us to be born again. Like a new baby that has new longings, we are able now to have life, to see, to hear, to understand. He talks about it as a, a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5. That we have been made anew as a butterfly emerges from a cocoon. So too have Christians be made into a new creation. A new creature entirely with new desires and longings. Romans talks about it as a new life. Right? There's been a transformation and we no longer are enslaved by the old life. First Peter talks about that we have gone from darkness into light. That when you become a Christian it's as if God flipped on the light switch. And all the the furniture that you were stumbling around and hitting before, you're now able to see. 
You're now able to begin to navigate around and understand with God's leadership. You don't trip over the sofa anymore and, and get a bloody nose, right? Instead, you understand that, hey, when God says don't go there, don't have premarital sex, don't lust over that, don't store and hoard up for yourselves treasures in heaven or treasures on earth where, where moth and rust will come destroy, that he's warning you for your good. Maybe that was a good point. We'll see. Um, so we see that... We're going to take that off. Um, I, 